Hi, Journey. How are you? Great to see every single one of you, especially if you're a guest, maybe with us for the first time. We're particularly delighted to have you, uh, especially if you're a guest, maybe here from all the way from California. We're really glad to have you here today. I just want to remind you not to forget those Tuesday night worship experiences. We're calling them Engage. Uh, They start this coming Tuesday, 7 o'clock. It's different than the weekends, different than what we're doing here right now. Uh, It is a sort of alternative worship experience and another worship opportunity for these summer months because lots of us on the weekends go out and huddle in our igloos. Uh, And so uh, just a Tuesday night chance for you to stay engaged with the Lord and with uh, your church community. And so we're looking forward to seeing you this coming Tuesday, 7 o'clock, Engage. Will you uh, raise your hands on this one, please? How many of you have had something so challenging in your life? Uh, you were so daunted by this looming obstacle, sorry, obstacle, uh, you had no idea what to do about it, so you just ignored it. You just pretended that it wasn't there. You just hoped, show of hands, come on, you just hoped that that thing would go away. Yeah, we've all done that a time or two or a hundred, haven't we? I was really stunned uh, to learn this week as I prep this message that lots and lots of scholars, lots and lots of pastors, like big dog pastors, lots and lots of biblical expositors, big dog expositors, and so they've done that very thing with Romans chapters 9 and 10. Did you know this? They just skip over it. They just like pretend it's not there, sort of cross their fingers and pray that it just sort of goes away, which causes Romans 9 and 10 to be one of the most overlooked passages in the whole of the New Testament. And I think it's like they get to the end of hearing from the Apostle Paul on this matter of salvation by faith alone, chapters 1 through 8, which you could say, by the way, is the main thrust of the first eight chapters of Romans, salvation by faith alone. And they get to the end of that, and they're just in a big, fat hurry to get over to Romans 12, which is regarded as the sort of application piece of Paul's letter, which is such a bummer, because they're missing out on Romans 9, 10, and 11, which help us to grasp this matter of an understanding, a Christian understanding of history, really. Romans 9 and 10, Romans 9 through 11, frankly, really help us grasp this Christian understanding of history. Paul's unpacking matters like predestination. Who doesn't like to talk about that? Election, the sovereignty of God and salvation, not to mention this question of Israel. What happens with Israel? What's Israel's deal? But I gotta tell you, around here, we ain't skipping nothing, right? We're full on around here, and so we're gonna dive right in. Romans chapter 9 in the text, if you have one, or you can follow along with me right here on this screen, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here it comes. Yeah, here we go. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. And we like that, right? Because Paul's writing the Bible here, so he just starts off saying, I'm telling the truth. He's not lying, right? My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled. Back up the bus. I don't have it memorized, sorry. We got, we got to go back. It's going to go backwards now. Oh, it's here already. <laughs> Sorry. Who's the dummy? Me. I'm always the dummy. 
It's never them. It's always me. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people, my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. What does that mean, by the way? What's he saying there? I would be willing to go where and spend forever where? Hell. That's exactly right. Paul's saying, if it would save my Jewish brothers and sisters, I'd go to hell. They are the people of Israel, chosen to be God's adopted children. God revealed his glory to them. He made covenants with them and gave them his law. He gave them the privilege of worshiping him and receiving his wonderful promises. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are their ancestors. And Christ himself was an Israelite as far as his human nature is concerned. And he is God, the one who rules over everything and is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. So here's Paul, right? He's a Jew. He's trained in the rabbinic tradition. And he opens up this portion of his letter to the church in Rome by communicating, did you hear it there? How broken his heart is for the plight of his very own people. Did you hear that? He's declaring this enormous love that he has for his unsaved brothers and sisters. And I gotta tell you, he's starting in the right place, isn't he? Every single evangelistic effort any of us ever undertakes has to start in that exact place. Paul models it for us. It has to start with a broken heart for people who are living life far from God. It can't start anywhere else. It has to start with our hearts, broken, crushed, battered, bruised, for people who are living life far from God. And then he rolls on, starting in verse 6. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promise to Israel? No, for not all who were born into the nation of Israel are truly members of God's people. Being descendants of Abraham doesn't make them truly Abraham's children. For the scriptures say, Isaac is a son through whom your descendants will be counted. Though Abraham had other children too. This means that Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. Only the children of the promise are considered to be Abraham's children. For God had promised, I will return about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. The son was our ancestor Isaac. When he married Rebekah, she gave birth to twins. But before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad, she received a message from God. This message shows that God chooses people according to his own purposes. He calls people, but not according to their good or bad works. She was told, your older son will serve your younger son. In the words of the scriptures, I love Jacob, but I rejected Esau. Are we saying then that God was unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, I'll show mercy to anyone I choose. I'll show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose of displaying my power in you and to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. And no question whatsoever seems as puzzling to the Christ follower as the matter of unanswered prayer, does it? Why is it that some things that we pray about are never, ever answered in the way that we prayed that they would be answered? How many times have you in your life prayed and prayed and prayed only to conclude that your most fervent prayers have not been answered the way you'd been asking for them to be? Just this past week in our very own community, a guy named Harold Vaughn, 21-year-old Montana State University student. He died in a kayaking accident out on the Gallup River, right? And our hearts, they go out to Harold's friends and family. One of Dana's colleagues, uh, one of her friends from the hospital who she works with, she lost her husband just 
this week, Thursday night as a matter of fact, suddenly and tragically in our heart, hearts go out to Vicky and her family. I was visiting with Jason Schrauger, the Bozeman City Fire Chief, after the nine o'clock gathering out in the hallway, in the lobby. And his three-year-old son, Caden, is battling an 18-month, is going to be an 18-month deal, cancer. Three-year-old with cancer out in Seattle, the Children's Hospital. And you just shake your head and you say, against all odds, people praying, people begging, God, please. And here's what I know. Like, I know that when people found out that Harold was in trouble out on that river, and I know that when people found out that Craig was in trouble, and I know that when people found out that little Caden had cancer... People prayed, right? People dropped to their knees and they started praying, begging God, please, may it not be cancer. Please, may Harold not die. Please, may Craig not die. And Caden has cancer. Craig died. Harold died. And we come into those situations and we have all of these unanswered questions. What happened? Why? Did I not pray hard enough? Did I not pray long enough? Were my prayers not fervent? enough? Did I use the wrong words? Did I ask God for the wrong things altogether? What if I would have called together more people and asked more people to pray, like just put more horsepower on the matter? Would it have mattered if I had lived a better life? Would that have made any kind of difference? If I had given more money or if I had tried harder, if I had been a better person, lived a better life, that would have helped absolutely, right? Did things not go the way I prayed because I didn't confess my sins? Was it because my heart was prideful? Did I wait too long to start praying? Did I not drop to my knees soon enough? Should I have made a vow to God in the midst of all of that? Would that have made any kind of difference? And we really, we sort of torture ourselves with questions like that. And we get to the end of all those questions and we still don't have the answer. We drive ourselves crazy asking all those questions. Here's what I know. Is that unanswered prayer is one of the great causes of people losing faith in God, isn't it? People just lose heart after a great crushing disappointment. God doesn't show up in the way they're asking him to show up and they pray and they pray and they pray. The answer they're seeking, it never comes and their faith just sort of evaporates. It just slips away. And I gotta tell you, Paul knows all about this deal. He's not a stranger to this unanswered prayer thing. Remember, his most fervent prayer was never answered. He prayed endlessly for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to faith in Christ. He said, I'll go to hell if it'll help him come to Christ. Yet his prayers, for the most part, to this very day, have gone unanswered. Most Jews, to this very day, reject Christ. And so Paul lived and Paul died, never having seen his greatest and most fervent prayer answered in the affirmative. But I gotta also tell you this, his faith never wavered. God didn't answer his prayer the way he hoped he would answer his prayer, but Paul's faith did not waver. He pressed on, he pressed in, he kept on. His faith just didn't wither and evaporate away. And so you step back from all of that, all those unanswered questions. And you go, how in the world do we reconcile faith in God with this profound mystery of unanswered prayer? And Paul tells us in verse six, well then, he says, has God failed to fulfill his promise? And then he answers it. No, he hasn't, absolutely not. And so whatever else you say about unanswered prayer, you can't say that God hasn't kept his word. No matter how incredibly crushed and disappointed we might be, God's word has not 
failed. The fact that some of our prayers are not answered to our satisfaction, it doesn't mean that God's off his throne and that everything is sort of spinning out of control. He hasn't failed. He hasn't let you down. He hasn't let anything down. And then he goes on, Paul does, in Romans 9, 19 to 29. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them do? No, don't say that. Who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? When a potter makes jars out of clay, doesn't he have a right to use the same lump of clay to make one jar for decoration and another to throw garbage into? In the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those to whom he shows mercy who were prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. Concerning the Gentiles, God says in the prophecy of Hosea, those who are not my people, I will now call my people. And I will love those whom I did not love before. And then at the place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. And concerning Israel, Isaiah the prophet cried out, though the people of Israel are as numerous as the sand of the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth quickly and with finality. And Isaiah said the same thing in another place. If the Lord of heaven's armies had not spared a few of our children, we would have been wiped out like Sodom, destroyed like Gomorrah. And you read that passage and you step back from those verses and you have to know that in the history of the Christian church, few issues have been so hotly contested as this issue right here of what's the issue that Paul's addressing there? It's a P word. Predestination. That's exactly right. And all throughout the centuries, theologians and lay people alike have argued about whether or not this doctrine of predestination is true. And no matter where you come down on the predestination versus free will debate, I happen to come down squarely in the middle of both of them, honestly, because they're both in the text. We have to hold them both in tension. They exist in tension because for every predestination verse you give, I can give another for free will and vice versa. We have to hold them in tension. And no matter where you come down, there's more questions than answers, isn't there? For example, if predestination is true, what about free will? What happens to it? Are we just puppets on a string doing what God decided in eternity past? Does God then predestine some people to go to heaven? Great question. If so, does he also predestine others to go to hell. This question, why bother with evangelism since whomever is going to be saved will be saved eventually, right? For that matter, if God predestines some people to hell, how in the world can they even be guilty of sin since they're only doing what God predestined them to do? Incredibly difficult questions. Make your head swim kind of questions, right? And honestly, I don't expect to answer them in one piece of one sermon. But what we have to absolutely concede is this fact that the Bible teaches predestination. It's a biblical word used several times in the New Testament. There's no getting around it. And in light of that, I want to lay out three truths that everyone on both sides of the debate can absolutely and entirely hang our hats on straight out of Romans chapter 9. But, everyone's got a but, right? But before I dump these out on you... Something that we have to absolutely keep in mind is that Paul's struggling 
to the depths of his heart and soul with this issue, with this matter of Jewish unbelief. Paul's wrestling night and day with this question of why in the world have so many Jews rejected Christ outright if he's really the Jewish Messiah. And so as Paul wades into this predestination conversation, you have to know, and we have to hold this fact in mind, this isn't just some abstract theological issue to Paul. His heart is wrenched and torn and battered by the reality that so many of his friends and loved ones do not have a relationship with Jesus. They're headed for an eternity apart from God. That's causing Paul, really picture him, weeping as he pens these words of Romans chapter 9. These words come streaming out of a broken heart. And so whenever we have conversations, dialogue, even debate about free will and predestination, we have to hold that in mind. This isn't just an abstract theological debate. What's at stake is the eternal destiny of souls. The eternal destiny of souls is at stake. We can't just have it be out there in outer space somewhere in a vacuum. It's all about people. It's all about souls. It's all about their forevers. We have to carry that in heart and mind all the time. The first truth I want to lay out, Romans chapter 9, this issue of predestination is this. God's God, and he gets to do whatever it is that he wants to do. He's God, and we're not. And that cuts across our grain, doesn't it? Our ears are highly attuned to love the talk about personal freedom, about doing your own thing, about seeking your own happiness, right? Happiness really has sort of become our national excuse for doing whatever it is that we want to do, whatever feels good at this moment, right? But God's God, and we're not. That means he gets to decide, and we don't. And Paul, to make it very, very clear, uses that pottery illustration. Picture the potter sitting at the wheel, working this big lump of clay. The clay is spinning around and around. With just a tiny, tiny touch, the potter creates this indentation. With another very slight touch, the potter can produce these intricate swirls. And with very, very subtle changes in pressure, the potter can radically alter the shape of the clay. And what emerges at the conclusion can be a gorgeous decorative vase. I love saying that word, vase. Or it can be a garbage can, can't it? Both came from the exact same lump of clay. The vase might be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars if it's really nice. The garbage can might be worth a few bucks at best. And so you ask the question, what is it that makes the difference? It's the potter's hands, isn't it? Capital P, potter's hands. And at the very end of the day, the garbage can never gets to say to the potter, I wanted to be a decorative vase. It doesn't work like that. The potter, capital P, has the right to shape the clay any way they like, and that's the way life is. God has the right because he's God to do whatever it is that he wants to do. He gets to decide I don't. Second thing from Romans 9 on predestination, God always delays punishment in order to reveal his mercy. It's crystal clear. God delays his punishment in order to reveal his mercy. We know that God is always and forever just, but he doesn't always treat everyone in precisely the same manner, does he? And we don't like that either, right? That sounds almost un-American to us, right? Aren't all people created what? Equal? Well, yes. In one sense, we are all created in God's image. That gives us equal dignity and worth intrinsically. 
We're equal in that we're all equally significant to God. But get this, if you go to heaven when you die, you go only as a gift of God because someone else, the Son of God named Jesus Christ, paid the price of admission for us. Not a single one of us is good enough to get in on our own. And God operates in this mercy, with this mercy deal. And mercy is receiving something that none of us deserve. And he is just, and he is merciful, and he does delay his judgment in order to show mercy to those he's calling to salvation, which means that God gives everyone more time to be saved. He gives you more time to be saved. God delays his punishment in order to reveal his mercy. Third thing, God determined to show mercy to both Jew and Gentile alike. In this predestination versus free will conversation, lots of people think that predestination means that only a few people will be saved, but nothing could be further from the truth. God swings the doors of heaven wide open to the entire world, meaning that anyone, and I mean anyone, Jew or Gentile alike who believes in Jesus, can be saved. Anyone who wants to can walk right into salvation. Whether you're a Jew or the rest of us, it doesn't matter. God determined to show mercy to both Jew and Gentile alike. Paul closes out chapter 9 with These very pregnant words, verses 30 to 33, what does all this mean? It's a great question, isn't it? What does all that mean? Even though the Gentiles were not trying to follow God's standards, they were made right with God. How were they made right with God? It was by faith that this took place. The people of Israel, the Jews, who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law, they never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting in him. They just got on the performance treadmill, didn't they? They just stepped into the hamster wheel and worked harder, harder. More laws, more laws. Remember the stack of books on the guys last weekend, right? Just pile it on, pile it on, pile it on, and you can't do it. They stumbled, the Jews, over the great rock in their path. God warned them of this in the scriptures when he said, I'm placing a stone in Jerusalem that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall, but anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jesus is the stone Paul references. Jesus is the stone placed along the highways and byways of life, and lots of people stumble over him. Lots of people also stand on him. Some people Jesus causes to stumble. Others, Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of their life, which means at the end of the day that our eternal destiny all hangs on our response to Jesus, doesn't it? Our eternal destiny hangs on how we appropriate Jesus into our lives. Some people, for example, the Jews who attempt to find salvation through works, I'll just keep the law, I'll just be a little better, I'll just try a little harder, they're stumbling over Jesus. They don't see him, or if they do see him, they ignore him because they're so consumed with trying to establish their righteousness, trying to prove their righteousness before God. That causes them to stumble over Jesus and fall. Others, however, they slog through life deeply aware of their sin. They know they aren't perfect, and they try, and they fail, and they try, and they fail, and they try, and they fail, and they know that salvation must come from outside of themselves. And it's to that group of people that comes the trumpeted promise from the God of the universe 
himself. And so it begs the question, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a stumbling stone or is he your cornerstone, your foundation? Are you standing on the rock that is Christ or are you stumbling over him? Paul keeps going, Romans chapter 10, kind of in the same vein, starting in verse 1. Dear brothers and sisters, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm, there it is again, his heart, his broken heart for his brethren and his sister, if that's a word. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it's misdirected zeal. They don't get it. They don't understand that God's way of making people right with himself Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. And we're just going to roll over right to verse 5, and we'll just keep going all the way through 13. For Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. You've got to keep every bit of it. You can't fumble one ball. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven and bring Christ down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring Christ back to life again. In fact, it says, the message is very close at hand. It is on your lips. It is in your heart. And that message is the very message about the faith we preach. And then this verse is probably very familiar to lots of us. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will will be saved. One of the great promises in all of the Bible, for it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And you can absolutely hang your eternity on that. As the scriptures tell us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And you can sum up those 13 verses by saying very simply, God's done it all. He has done it all. Everything necessary for you to be saved, he did it. He sent his one and only son who paid the ultimate price on the cross. He rose from the dead. And you, me, us, believing that, and all of us trusting in that, all of us staking our life on it, all of us resting our everything we have on it and confessing Jesus is our Lord. That's what saves you. That's what saves you. It isn't anything more and it isn't anything less. That's it. That's it. And finally, today, Paul closes out chapter 10 with what ought to be a full-on recalibration of our missionary efforts personally. As a big C church, absolutely. All the way down to us personally, Romans ten fourteen to 21. Some of this might be familiar to some of you. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And you're wondering why in the world there's this giant ear on the stage. This is my right ear. It's a big old ear. It's right here. And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How can they believe in Jesus if they haven't heard about Jesus? And how can they hear about him unless somebody tells them? 
And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the shoes. You're wondering why all the shoes are hanging from the stage. How beautiful are the shoes or the feet of messengers who bring good news. But not everyone welcomes the good news. For Isaiah the prophet says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ. You have to hear if you're going to believe. But I ask, have the people of Israel actually heard the message? Yes, they have. The message has gone out throughout the earth and the words to all the world. But I ask, did the people of Israel really understand? Yes, they did. For even in the time of Moses, God said, I will rouse your jealousy through people who are not even a nation. I will provoke your anger through the foolish Gentiles. Later, Isaiah spoke boldly for God, saying, I was found by people who were not looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. But regarding Israel, God said, all day long I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and they were rebellious. And I'm afraid that in a great mass of the church of Jesus Christ, that we've lost much of our missionary fervor that's been the hallmark of Christ's church for about 2,000 years now. It would seem that in a whole bunch of the big C church of Jesus Christ that the tie between preaching the gospel and being saved has been severed. Some in the church are caving into the postmodern malaise. Some in the church are fearful of being perceived as intolerant. Some in the church are misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus Christ and are teaching that other religions are the way to God. So why would we bother then to send out missionaries when people can just be saved via their own religion, all these different paths, all leading to the same destination? Others in the church often hold to a view that God can just reveal himself to people in all kinds of ways. So why do we need to preach the gospel? It's become unnecessary. But you have to understand those views simply do not square with the Bible. They simply do not square with the scripture. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, says Jesus Christ. And what we know is that salvation is very clearly linked to belief. And belief is clearly tied to the hearing of the message of Christ, which is a direct result of people being sent out so that the gospel message can be proclaimed. You are sent. The shoes you have on your feet right now are your missionary shoes. Missionary shoes aren't something that other people wear in other countries. They wear funny shoes and funny shirts and they're missionaries in other places. We're all Christians, missionaries. Every single one of us. And in order for anyone to call on the name of the Lord, somebody has to go and somebody has to preach the gospel to them. And preaching isn't just limited to what pastors do on the stage on weekends, is it? Preaching the gospel better be a whole lot more broad than what I'm doing right now. It's you sharing Jesus with the people who you're interacting with all week long. Preaching the gospel, as a matter of fact, is you sharing your faith over a cup of coffee with a coworker or a neighbor or a friend. Preaching the gospel is what you do when you answer someone's faith questions. They've had some catastrophe in their life. They have no idea. Their world is spinning. They don't know what to do. 
They don't know up from down. And so they just call you and they say, hey, will you talk to me about faith? Because I can't make sense of any of this. That's preaching the gospel when you do your best to answer those very difficult questions. That's preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel is everything you're doing when you talk to a family member on the phone about Christ. Preaching the gospel is what you do when you write a letter to a loved one explaining the gospel to them. Preaching the gospel. We're all preachers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And right now, right now, we're wearing our missionary shoes. Sometimes they're even ski boots. My favorite pair up here, the ski boots, because sometimes you're sharing Christ on the ski lift, right? With a buddy. And the text says, how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless you tell them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? You are. That's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers, how beautiful are the shoes of messengers who bring good news. And I'm convinced that much of the reason the church of Jesus Christ isn't carrying on that missionary fervor that was so much of the part of the church's history is because lots and lots and lots of Christians have forgotten that we're the sent ones, that we're actually responsible for bringing the good news to people everywhere. It's like we just got busy and we got caught up and we got consumed and we thought life was all about like making a living and raising a family and running a business or whatever it is. We just forgot. We forgot that we, all of us, are the preachers of the gospel, not just the paid professional preachers. All of us are preachers of the gospel. We are every single day the messengers whose shoes, whose feet are supposed to be bringing the good news of Jesus to people all day long, every single day. In ancient times when Paul was writing, good news, any kind of news for that matter, traveled by means of messengers who were in very good shape because they ran from place to place to place, currying messages. For example, every time an army marched off to war in some far-off land, no one knew for months how the battle had gone until one day the messenger came with the news. Back then, you know this. There wasn't any cell phones. There wasn't any live television streaming of the battle from some far-off land. They didn't have the internet flashing news around the world instantly. Everything depended on the messengers arriving safely with the news. He has news. She has news. And you can't imagine the joy from people who looked up to the mountains and they saw the messenger. Here he comes. Here he comes, running down the mountainside with good news. And that's our calling, church. That's our calling, our mission and our purpose. And it had better be our passion. And so the question becomes, will you go? Will you realize that you're right now wearing your missionary shoes and will you step out and will you bring the joyous good news of Jesus Christ to everyone you can? It's the mission of Christ. It's everything that life is meant and intended to be about from the very beginning of time. Will you bring the good news and how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless you tell them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? I'm sending you right now in case you haven't already been sent. You're sent now. That's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet, how beautiful are the shoes of messengers 
who bring good news. Will you take your stuff and set it aside and will you go to prayer? Will you and Jesus just hang out and have some interaction on this? Anything else he's stirring up in your heart? heads bowed and with your eyes closed, maybe there's some of you who have yet to place your faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. And please hear me clearly. The good news of Jesus, his offer of love and salvation and redemption and newness of life, it's free. It cost him everything, but it's absolutely free to you. And you can, right now, take that step of saving faith in God by praying along with me, which I invite, which I encourage. And at the same time, I encourage you to pray with me. I gotta tell you the truth, that saying words in a prayer won't save you. Prayer does not save. Christ alone saves. Prayer is just the means of reaching out to Christ in saving faith. And here's what I know. If you pray these words in faith, Jesus will absolutely save you. You can be entirely sure of that. And so I invite you to pray with me. Jesus, for far too long, I've kept you out. I've kept you away. I've hidden from you. And Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I can't save myself. I've been trying really, really hard. I've been trying, but I can't. And so Jesus, from here on out, no longer am I going to keep the door closed when I hear you knocking. By faith in this moment, I gratefully receive your gift of salvation. I'm trusting you as my Savior. I'm trusting you as my Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for coming to earth to die for me. Thank you for rising from the dead for me. Thank you for bearing my sins. Thank you for giving me the gift of eternal life. Will you, Jesus, come into my heart and into my life? Will you be my Savior? And if you're stepping into faith in Jesus today, that is the most momentous occasion in your entire life. It's so weighty that every single thing in your life swings on that very hinge. And it's such a big deal that around here we invite people to tell us when they make that decision and I'm going to ask you to do that with me right here, right now. Nobody's looking around. It's just you, me, and God right now. If you prayed with me just then, would you be real bold and just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me? You can do that right now and just say yes. I'm saying yes to Jesus today. Saving faith in Jesus. So you can do that now. Yeah, in the back. Absolutely. Yes. It's all about what Jesus did, not you. And there. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. just make sure yeah over there absolutely it's not what you do it's everything Jesus did he did it it's what he did not you it's him yes way to go and in the back absolutely yeah yes 
Yeah, you. Absolutely to my left. Absolutely. Yes. It's him. It's only him. All that work and all that striving, you just put it down and you just say, I can't. It's him. And there, absolutely. Yes. And yes, absolutely. Yeah, and you too. Yeah. Way to go. So Jesus, we are so grateful for these who are taking that step of saving faith today. We ask God that you would surround them with your children, us. You would infuse your newness of life in every single one of them. And God, the transformation that you assure that it would be tangible to them. That they'd see the difference. They'd experience the difference. They'd know the difference that you've made and that you're going to continue to make in their life every day from here until eternity. And God, I pray for all of us, whether we're new in faith or not, that we would recognize that these shoes we're wearing now are our missionary shoes, that we're sent on your mission, that we're not just treading water until Jesus comes back to sort of biding time, but that we're living on mission. And that, God, it might be said of us how beautiful are the shoes of those journey church people who bring good news everywhere they go. Make it true of us, please, Jesus. It's for you, and it is about you, and it is all because of you. And it's in your name we pray this. Everyone agreed and said, 